Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. This is the beginning of the story of the Exodus. And the Zohar says that all future redemptions are based on the Jews being taken out of Egypt. The Ari says it was like a, an animal being delivered from a calf, meaning to say that there was this birthing process taking place. Birth is a really interesting comparison. You know, you could have compared it to the blossoming of a flower. As far as I know, when a flower blossoms, it doesn't experience excruciating pain. And yet everybody knows about birth pangs, that there's something absolutely unparalleled about the process of a baby entering into this world. And so the fact that the birth of the Jewish people is compared to this birthing process, which is filled with all sorts of trauma, really, is really striking. And you see that the, every aspect of taking the Jews out of Egypt from the very beginning of the process, it doesn't go smoothly. So that's kind of really what's at the heart of this. How can you have a perfect God implementing his will perfectly, and yet things don't go smoothly at all? From our perspective. This is really at the heart of the human condition. This is our central question. And let me make it more personal. Does anything I do really matter? Like, here I'm trying to connect with truth. I'm trying to connect with God. I'm trying to connect with Torah. And a lot of times I don't see any difference happening in myself and the people around me. Like... How do, I, how do I reconcile that? How do I reconcile that I'm actually dealing with the currency of the infinite, and yet I don't see any change with my eyes? Or to return back to the initial phrasing of it on the more global level, how can a perfect God who is implementing his will perfectly simultaneously create a situation from our perspective Things are not going smoothly. So let's begin really at the beginning of the process of the redemption from Egypt, as far as Moshe is concerned anyway. And I always like to flash on a cinematic presentation of what's going on, just so that we can kind of make it real in our minds. You've got one person... Okay, he goes in with Sipporah, his wife, and his two sons. And by the way, Sipporah saves Moshe's life on his way to Egypt by circumcising their son. An amazing little incident where God literally wants to strike down Moshe before he even arrives in Egypt. And Sipporah saves his life. Sipporah figures out that, wow, we haven't done the circumcision of our son. And there's a mighty lesson there, which is, you know what? Before you save the world, don't forget about your personal responsibilities. A lot of people, you know, they think somehow if I'm well-intentioned in the most global way, that excuses any sort of like disorganization in my own personal affairs and excuses it. And we see here that because Moshe didn't take care of this very important mitzvah, although he meant well, I mean, we're talking about the greatest person that ever lived here. He, he certainly meant well by delaying the circumcision of his, of his son because he thought that there was something more important at stake. Even from that place of good intentions, there was a judgment came, that came down. And thank God for Tzipporah, his wife, who does the brist, circumcises Gershon, and saves Moshe's life. And then Moshe can proceed to, to Egypt. But Getting back to this very epic visual, imagine a man on his donkey. You see the back of him, and he's heading toward this kingdom, which is so great. 
and he's got no Stinger missiles, nothing, nothing, no gun, weaponless. He just has Hashem on his side and the word of God. And we'll cut to approximately a year later, and he's leaving with millions of people, and the entire place is in ruins. And the glory of ancient Egypt hasn't returned till this day. Unbelievable. And it happened. But I told you that it doesn't go smoothly, and it doesn't go smoothly from the outset. He almost doesn't even get there at all. And at the burning bush, when he gets the orders to go into Egypt to happen, the Talmud says that conversation with God lasted seven days. Seven days, Moshe said no to God. I'm not the guy. I don't want to do it. Now, I heard a commentary that I think helps to explain all of this. God revealed to Moshe that at this stage in history, taking the Jews out of Egypt was not going to be the final redemption. And that's why Moshe protested for as long as he did. Because he said, unless you're actually going to bring the messianic era and fix the entire world and bring it to that stage that you had in mind, you yourself, God, had in mind, this era of perfection that you had in mind from the very outset of creation. I want it to be that now. And that's what the argument was about. That's what the argument was about. And finally, Moshe understood that God knows best and that God wants to do it in stages. And so it's going to be through stages, but still, even when it's on the level of stages, it goes bumpily. It doesn't go smoothly. And that's what we talked about today. Even when it comes incrementally, it's like birth pangs. It's like birth pangs. So we have to make ourselves strong and not get intimidated by the struggle and not, God forbid, think because there's a struggle that somehow it's off because it's hard. No, sometimes the greatest things in life are hard because they're so good. Um. And there's another detail that's more than just a detail. Because if this series of, is about one thing, I think, it's about how essential it is to have a personal relationship with God and how central it is to base it on the Torah and regular Torah study. Because there's just, simply speaking, there's just a trillion ways to go through life. More, a trillion squared ways of going through life. But there is a narrative. There is actually a narrative to life. And you're not going to chance on it. You're not going to chance on it. That's, that's the amazing thing. We think intuitively, like, what, what makes sense to us is, in fact, the truth. And God says one of the most epic verses in all of Torah. God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. See, we tend to think of God as just a bigger, stronger, smarter version of ourselves. And it's just God is beyond, 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 beyond. And without this guide to life that we call the Torah, we're lost. And, you know, it's just a question of how humble we want to be. We can either accept it or we cannot accept it. And that's up to us. God makes that up to us. But to think that we can get through this phenomenally complex world without divine wisdom, just, it, it, I don't know. To me, that doesn't make sense. But that means, like, we have to lower ourselves to a certain extent. One of the challenges of learning something as vast as Torah is that there is so much information available that it's almost impossible to know how to prioritize it. 
which means that you can know the right thing and be doing the wrong thing because you don't know which is the right thing to do in the moment. This is why halacha, Jewish law, is so important to study because it's going to tell you how to prioritize all of the different things in your life and which thing to choose in the moment. So halacha is unfortunately translated as Jewish law, but the actual Hebrew word itself means the way, meaning there's a path through all of the dissonance and different choices. There's a path through. That's why it's called the way, okay? Halacha. And halacha, interestingly, has the word holech in it. Holech means to walk. And as my good friend Rabbi Shlomo Seidenfeld says, to walk and not to run. In other words, when you decide to go down this path, one step at a time, right? Take a step, integrate it, make it real. Don't get overwhelmed. Don't run, because if you run, it's going to feel good in the moment. You're going to feel holy in the moment, and then you're going to crash. One step, integrate it, and then when you're ready for the next step, according to where you're at, then you take the next step. Anyway, in terms of prioritizing the vast amounts of information that we have to assimilate, one of the absolute places that we have to start is understanding the primacy, the importance of free choice. God created this entire world just so there could be a place where free choice exists. So free choice is absolutely everything, okay? And how does God create a realm where free choice can even exist? Because only human beings have free choice. In the spiritual realms, angels see a revelation of godliness. They don't see all of God. Only God sees all of God, okay? That's why it says, no one can see my face and live. Because if you're seeing God's face, you're already God, and only God can see all of God, so then you don't exist anymore. So angels see way more than we do, but they don't see everything. Angels have no free choice, because angels are immobilized by the revelation, and they can't choose wrong. And God says, I already have angels. I have something more interesting in mind. I would love a creation that's not intimidated by me and yet still chooses to serve me. What if I conceal my presence so that they wonder if I even exist and then they're calling the shots and let's see if they choose truth. This is what God has in mind for this world. Rabbi Nachman talks about that if there are any setbacks in life, it's just to prepare you for an aliyah, for going up. And the most beautiful illustration of that, I think, is I'm standing right now. So if you, if you want to do this, if you're, if you're game to do this with me, great. But otherwise, just pay attention. When you want to jump, what do you do? You bend your knees down, you lower yourself, and what does that do? That prepares you to rise off the ground. Humility doesn't mean surrendering self-esteem. <laughs> A lot of people think, well, if I'm going to be humble, then what are you doing? You're inviting me to hate myself? Like, for goodness sakes. But that's not what humility is. Humility is an acceptance of the true reality, which then allows you to rise up. That's what it is. Okay, so anyway, what's the point of all this? I want to talk about the centrality of the Torah. That's the point. You see, let me tell you what most people think. They think God takes the Jews out of Egypt with signs and wonders, which is amazing, and now God has a problem. What am I going to do with all these people? I've got to arrange some activities. I know I'll give them the Torah. <laughs> That'll keep them busy for a few thousand years. 
This is what most people think. But if you actually look at what the Torah is saying, Moshe finds the burning bush, which is the beginning of the entire story of the liberation from Egypt, which we said again is the template for all future redemptions leading up to the next era of humanity. Where was the burning bush? Guess what? It was at Mount Sinai. And God says to Moshe at the burning bush, take the people out of Egypt and bring them back here. In other words, it wasn't just an activity to do once we got out of Egypt. It was the entire point of taking us out of Egypt. Right? And as we've said over and over again, the Torah exists in book form, but it's more than a book. It's the fabric of the universe itself. It's God's vision for the world and God's vision for each of us individually. But what we see here is that Moshe didn't want to do it. <laughs> Again, another part of the birth pangs of redemption. And you know something else? I heard Reb Shlomo say that had Moshe, when he got the command to take the Jews out, if he had said, you know, you know, of course you're coming to me, God. Like, what took you so long? If he hadn't just fallen on his face and like, why are you asking me to do it? That God never would have chosen him to begin with. One of the most resonant things I ever <clears throat> learned from Reb Shlomo, I'm just slightly paraphrasing it. He says that if a person says to God, God, I'm desperate for there to be a highway between people's hearts. And I'm the man to build it. God says, don't call me, I'll call you. But if a person says, God, I'm desperate for there to be a highway between people's hearts and I have no idea how to do it, God says, okay, you're my man. So, so the beginning of redemption is making yourself into a vessel for humility. Through humility, you create a vessel for redemption. And then Moshe finally goes into Egypt, right? We see that it was a long struggle. And by the way, he was 80 years old when he's beginning this most important chapter of world history. Society today wants to tell you that you're over the hill at 30. But when did God say, Lech Lecha, go forth to Abraham? He was 75 years old. When does Moshe's journey begin in terms of the Moshe that we are speaking about till this day when he's 80 years old? So however old you are, keep those numbers in mind because the truth is for better, for worse, we're all slow learners. But if we stay in the game, we get the message. We get the message. And so a lot of times we're going to do our best, most meaningful work when we get a little bit older. So just keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. Okay. So now Moshe enters into Egypt. And this is the beginning of the redemption, right? Well, what's the first thing that happens? Everything gets worse. And now we return back to our question. How can a perfect God who implements his will perfectly, from our perspective, how can everything be so disordered and seemingly adrift. How can those two things exist simultaneously? This is really at the heart of the human condition. And Moshe struggles with this. The greatest of all people struggles with this. 
And he gets incredibly frustrated, by the way. And I'm going to tell you how frustrated in a moment. He asks God, how could this happen? Now, let me give you the detail, because you've probably heard it over the years, but it's, it's good to just step it out and just hear it very concretely. The Jewish people at that time had a quota of bricks that they had to make every single day. And they couldn't meet that quota. It was too hard. And they were being beaten. Now Moshe shows up. And the key ingredient for making bricks was straw. And now after Moshe, quote unquote, interferes, the Egyptians say, now they've got to make the same number of bricks and go out and get their own straw. Now they're going to be able to get straw, which is a completely new level of work that they had to do when they couldn't get the job done to begin with. And how many beatings are they going to face now that they're going to make even less bricks? Do you, do you understand? And it's not just like, wow, we're getting into trouble or things are not going our way. No, no, no. It had already gotten to the level of physical abuse and now the physical abuse is now getting worse. So this is what Moshe is confronted with. And Moshe says to God, why did you send me? Not only that, but why have you done evil to this people? Which is, if you think about Moshe's got a direct line to God, it's a very alarming thing for him to be saying. By the way, on one level you could say, yeah, well, it all works out. And yes, on, on some level, it all does work out. But the rabbis comment that because of Moshe's comment here, Moshe doesn't make it into the land of Israel 40 years later. Because God says back to Moshe, now you'll see what I'm going to do to Pharaoh with a strong hand and send them out. And the rabbis pick up on that language. God is going to send them out, meaning the Jewish people, but not you. Classically, we say that it's because Moshe hit the rock instead of speaking to the rock, which happens 40 years later. But our tradition is that really it starts here, Moshe not entering into the land. So, so it's heavy. It's heavy. Why do we experience imperfection in our lives if we dwell amidst perfection? How can those two things go hand in hand? So, I want to give you a big answer, and then I want to give you a more personal answer. So the big answer is something that we've been learning together over the years and is just absolutely one of, the, one of my missions in life, truly, without exaggerating, that I'm trying to get across this idea to the world. Because the world needs this idea, and this idea is truth. Okay. Which is that everyone's got the same question. If there is a God, why is the world so messed up? This is everybody's question. And the answer is, because the world isn't finished yet. That is the answer. And is because everybody thinks the Garden of Eden was a cosmic spa, and we blew it, and all of human history is trying to get back to zero. This is what everybody thinks, and it's not, that's, not the, that's not the narrative. This is not the story we're in. As Reb Shlomo said so brilliantly, if the Garden of Eden was so perfect, what was the snake doing there? Do you understand? The snake is the smoking gun. It's the smoking gun pointing us to the fact that the Garden of Eden wasn't perfect and that the world wasn't finished. We make a very sort of like obvious mistake. And by that I mean 
when it says, and then God completed the world in seven days and everything like that, and we look at the coherent, structurally coherent universe around us, we think this is the finished world that God intended to make. This is not the finished world that God intended to make. The finished world that God intended to make is a perfect world. How can a perfect being not create something perfect? Why would a perfect being who's good create a world where there's suffering? Unless, unless the world isn't finished yet. And we see it, by the way, the very first word of the Torah. Remember, the Torah is the blueprint of reality. It says in the Zohar, God looked into the Torah and created the universe, which means the very first word and the Zohar says that all of the Torah is contained within the very first word of the Torah. So the very first word is what? Beginnings. Out of beginnings. What does beginnings imply? That there's a middle and an end. In other words, the Torah itself is telling us we are in a process, in an unfolding journey. That is what's going on. So God created us to be partners with him to finish the world. This is what's going on right now. Okay, so now I want to make it more personal. And I've been thinking about this story. And this story happens in two parts, okay? This happened to me, okay? And the first part of this story is when I first came out to Los Angeles after graduating college, you know, I wasn't observant yet. I wasn't putting on tefillin. I wasn't keeping Shabbos. But, you know, without going through all the details and everything like that, I was at a point in my life where I felt most comfortable praying in an Orthodox shul. And, and so it was Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur were coming, and I'm thinking, where am I going to pray and I decided that I'm going to go to the Chabad of Westwood, which was a close enough walk from where my apartment was. And I remember after, after Yom Kippur that year, Rabbi Kunin, who's the leader of the West Coast Chabad out here, he stood on a chair, and he's a very powerful speaker, and he thundered, thundered with his voice to the people there. He said, every boy 13 years and older has to put tefillin on every single day. Right? Except, of course, Shabbos. And every woman has to light Shabbos candles before sundown Friday night. And I, I left shul, and I remember saying to myself, he's right, he's right. I have to fill in. How could it be that I'm not putting it on? And that was my beginning. That's where I, when I began to put on to fill in every day till this day. So the address of that Chabad was 741 Gailey Avenue. And to this day, there's still the Chabad house there. 741 Gailey Avenue in Westwood in California, in Los Angeles. Okay, so now this is where the real story begins. And cut to right after World War II. And my father served in the, the United States Army. He wasn't sent overseas. He was injured. His job, you ready for this? How about not wanting this job, okay? His job was to clear landmines. All right? I mean, that's... Like, okay, who wants to die? Raise your hand, right? So that's his job, to go into, like, battlefields where these are powerful bombs buried under the ground, and you have to find them and defuse them before they blow up the troops. So most of the people in his unit died when they were sent overseas. But during a training mission... One of these landmines exploded and sent shrapnel under my father's fingernail. And it got infected, and he was sent to the hospital. And because of that, his life was saved. 
And after World War II, there was some, something famous, a little bit of American history here, called the GI Bill. The GI Bill changed probably millions of lives. It was basically a, an opportunity sponsored by the government for all the soldiers to go to college, which they couldn't say necessarily afford otherwise. And so under the GI Bill, my father, who's from the East Coast, from New Jersey, Newark, New Jersey, and then raised me and, and the rest of my family in, in New York City. But there was this tiny little chapter in my father's life, which was conducted almost completely on the East Coast. My dad decided that he wanted to go to college at UCLA in Los Angeles. And that, unfortunately, my father's sister got sick and, and died young. Anyway, so it, he was only in Los Angeles for a short time and then returned back to the East Coast. But anyway, he was going to do studies at UCLA and he wanted to find a place to live. And so he went to the closest frat house to the campus and he, you know, they asked him whatever he gave them a check, and he went upstairs and started unpacking his bags. And, and, while, he's and while he's unpacking his bag, someone walks into the room and, and, and says, you know, are, are you sure this is the place that you want to be? My father was like, yeah, you know, it's, it's like right across the street from the campus. You know, the, the location couldn't be better. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, yeah, this is a good place for me. And the person said to my father again, I mean, don't you think you'd be more comfortable with people more like yourself? And my father didn't understand where this person was going with this line of questioning. So my father naively answered, well, you know, I just got out of the army. I was with all sorts of people, different types of people. I feel comfortable with different types of people. And what my father didn't understand was that there were no Jews allowed at this place. And that somehow he had, you know, mistakenly from their point of view, gotten through the, the front door and this person was there to kind of fix the mistake this fraternity had made and make sure that this Jew was out of the house. My father finally got the point where when this man returned my father's deposit check to him. And then my father knew that he was being asked to leave. He was being kicked out. And so he packed up his bag. And this detail is remains in my mind very strongly from my father's telling me about this experience, which is as he walked downstairs, he had to get to the exit. He had to walk through the rec room and all the college guys were playing ping pong and horsing around and all the rest. And as they heard my father approach walking down the stairs, it was total silence in the room. Everybody knew what was going on and, and my father walked in silence across the room and out the door. And so when I heard this story, I, I realized that at that moment, my, my father had a choice in leaving that building. My father wasn't religiously observant. He could have said, what do I need all this Judaism for? You know, it's humiliating and it's embarrassing, and look what I've been subject to. And he could have gone anywhere after that. But he decided instead that he was gonna to go to the Jewish fraternity, and so to speak, re-up his membership as a Jew. And he did that. Now, where was that Jewish fraternity located? 741 Gailey Avenue. That Jewish fraternity, years and years and years later, became the Chabad house that I went to where I decided I'm starting to put on tefillin every single day. 
Now, let's think about that for a moment. Let's think about that for a moment. Imagine the map of the United States. We're both living on the East Coast. My father's in New Jersey. He goes 3,000 miles away to one little point on the globe, 3,000 miles away. And approximately 50 years later, I'm living in New York. And I also go 3,000 miles away to this same tiny point on the globe. You see, we ask ourselves this question. Does anything I do matter? I don't see any difference after I do it in the world around me. But can I tell you something? Let's go back to that verse in the Torah. God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. God is not just a bigger, better version of us. God is beyond, 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 beyond. And at the same time, fills this world and is so close to us. God's time plan is epic. It's epic. And no deed is lost. And look at how this action of my father opened up gates for me decades later. Do you know what this means? Every single thing that you do, and I'm going to go deeper into this point in a moment, every single thing that you do radiates out and affects the people around you and lasts for generations. For generations. And it's real and it's true. And now I want to tell you something awesome, absolutely awesome, that I just learned in the Pischei Sharem, one of the, one of the holy books of Judaism that sort of like describes step-by-step step the Kabbalistic narrative of the universe, okay? It's from about 200 years ago from Rav Yitzhak Isaac Chaver, and it has the Kabbalah of the Vilna Gon and the Ramchal and Rav Chaim Vital, okay? It's awesome, awesome, awesome. Rav Cook learned this, and many, it's very holy, this book. He brings the following. We've never learned this together before, and it's amazing. The letter Yud is actually, now, let's just appreciate what the letter Yud is before we even go on, okay? We know that all of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. It's called Lashon HaKodesh. Hebrew is different from every other, every other language in the world. Hebrew is the, the, the holy tongue. It's the language of creation. And each of the letters are energy wavelengths that God combined to create everything in creation. Right? So when we're looking at the letters, we're looking at symbols of things that are very, very awesome. Okay? They also function as letters so that we can pronounce words and all the rest. It's working on multiple levels. But at the core, the whole universe is made out of these letters. Okay? Now, the letter Yud is the holiest letter. And even the shapes of the letters can be explained and are very, very holy. And so if you imagine the line on the page or a line in the Torah scroll, right? Every single letter goes to the bottom of the line, and some letters even go below the line. But there's only one letter that floats above the line. <laughs> and that's the letter Yud. And what is Hashem's holiest name? The Yud Kevavke. Right? So it's, it's not for nothing, as they say, that the very first letter, which is this sort of like summation of Awesomeness is the letter Yud, first letter of God's name. Okay, now we're ready for the teaching. But let's do one more step first. See, what is a Yud when you, when you actually learn it inside in the holy books? In addition to the, being a letter, a Yud is the first minute 
crystallization from the infinite into the finite. Because a yud is like a dot, but like the, the, the tiniest dot imaginable. Okay, when we're getting into the, like the creation of the universe from nothing into something, the very first conjuring, the very first conjuring of materiality is the single point of creation. And that's the letter Yud. Now with that in mind, listen to the following, what the Piskei Sharam says. The letter Yud is actually composed of three parts. There's the top part of the Yud, and then there's the body of the Yud, the main trunk of the Yud. It actually uses the word trunk, like a tree trunk. So you've got the top part of the Yud, the trunk of the Yud, and you've got the bottom part of the Yud. And those three parts of the letter Yud are actually three different Hebrew letters. So a Yud, which is the smallest point, is actually made out of three letters. And what are those three letters? Yud, that's the top. Vav, that's the middle. And Yud, that's the bottom. Well, guess what? Those three letters add up to the number 26, which is Yudke Vavke, which is God's holiest name. Do you understand what that means? That means that when you go from the absolute infin infinite, which is just just all godliness. And then you get to the first components of materiality. That's also made out of godliness. <laughs> you know, what, what is this world? What is the material realm? The material realm is just condensed spirituality. So if anyone tells you, I'm not spiritual, it's like, my friend, that's all you are. <laughs> that's, all, that's actually all you are. That's actually all there is. You see, so often we, we, we accept the following premise, which is false, by the way, which is that there's the material realm and the spiritual realm. Right? So that allows a person to say, I'm not spiritual because I dwell in the material realm. And the spiritual realm, if it even exists, does not apply to me. But what they don't realize is it's not two separate entities. That it's one continuous spectrum where the light condenses into the material. So now let's get back to this more personal point. That means that whatever I do, if it's coming from my heart, if it's coming from my depths, and if I'm connecting it to the Torah and to the mitzvot, which are true and eternal, whatever I do, even if it's a small thing, even if it's just the letter Yud, because it's so small, I am putting out God into the world. God is channeling through me. The light from above is working through me and then returning back into the world. And you know, when the light goes through you, each one of us, and then enters back into the world, it's supercharged light because it's been processed through this prism of our free choice, which supercharges the light. So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. God knows who you are, and God hasn't forgotten about you. And you're never alone. And I'll just end with a story that has meant so much to me over the years. Just a classic, classic, classic story. It's just so good. And you know, tell it to your kids. It's important that your kids know this story. And tell it to yourself. Because we have to hear this story on a regular basis. 
the Baal Shem Tov was walking with one of his students in the forest. And the Baal Shem Tov said then, God permeates all of existence and every single thing in the world is under his direct guidance. And the student is looking at all the trees and all the leaves, right, and the wind blowing through the forest and says, God controls absolutely everything. And the Basham Tov says, every leaf on every tree. And just then, a leaf from one of the high trees blows off, and the Baal Shem Tov says, let's follow that leaf. And the leaf blows this way and it blows that way, and then it lands on a patch of sunlight on the floor of the forest. And they walk up to the leaf to investigate further, and they pick it up, and under there is a worm that was baking in the sun, and God sent that leaf to give it a canopy of shade so that it should be more comfortable. So if God is mindful of every worm <laughs> in every patch of sunlight, in every tree and every leaf and the direction that it flows and blows and lands, certainly God is aware of us. And not only that, and not only that, but we have a great question that Rabbi Matas Yahu Solomon, the spiritual head of the Lakewood Yeshiva, New Jersey, that I heard him ask, which is, we talked about the burning bush. When Moshe approaches the burning bush and he gets close, God says, take off your shoes because you're standing on holy ground. So Rabbi Solomon's question is, why didn't God tell him to take off his shoes before he stood on the holy ground? In other words, why did God, so to speak, wait for Moshe to do something wrong and then correct him? He should have told him in advance so that he would have the information that he needed. And the answer is that the land wasn't holy until Moshe stood on it. And why did Moshe make the land holy? Because he saw something amazing. And the Kutzkarebi said, many people walked by the burning bush and were just in a hurry to get to wherever they needed to go. And they didn't bother to investigate further. But Moshe saw this like very strange, remarkable sight. And he wanted to know what is going on? What is the truth of the universe? I need to know. And because he wanted to come closer to God and investigate more deeply, that very action is what transformed the land into something holy. Moshe's investigation, Moshe's desire to draw closer. That's what made it holy. And look at this, because the Baal Shem Tov was talking about this with his student, and because they decided to investigate, where did this leaf land? We're talking about it. We're talking about both of these events to this day. Because you know something? Can you imagine? A short walk transforms the world. You see someone standing on the street collecting? Well, it's a little bit out of my way. A short walk can transform the world. One of the challenges of learning something as vast as Torah is that there is so much information available that it's almost impossible to know how to prioritize it, which means that you can know the right thing and be doing the wrong thing because you don't know which is the right thing to do in the moment. This is why Halacha, Jewish law, is so important to study because it's going to tell you how to prioritize all of the different things in your life and which thing to choose in the moment. So halacha is unfortunately translated as Jewish law, but the actual Hebrew word itself means the way. 
meaning there's a path through all of the dissonance and different choices. There's a path through. That's why it's called the way. Okay? Halacha. And halacha, interestingly, has the word holech in it. Holech means to walk. And as my good friend Rabbi Shlomo Seidenfeld says, to walk and not to run. In other words, when you decide to go down this path, one step at a time, right? Take a step, integrate it, make it real. Don't get overwhelmed. Don't run, because if you run, it's going to feel good in the moment. You're going to feel holy in the moment, and then you're going to crash. One step, integrate it, and then when you're ready for the next step, according to where you're at, then you take the next step. Anyway, in terms of prioritizing the vast amounts of information that we have to assimilate, one of the absolute places that we have to start is understanding the primacy, the importance of free choice. God created this entire world just so there could be a place where free choice exists. So free choice is absolutely everything, okay? And how does God create a realm where free choice can even exist? Because only human beings have free choice. In the spiritual realms, angels see a revelation of godliness. They don't see all of God. Only God sees all of God, okay? That's why it says, no one can see my face and live. Because if you're seeing God's face, you're already God. And only God can see all of God, so then you don't exist anymore. So angels see way more than we do, but they don't see everything. Angels have no free choice. Because angels are immobilized by the revelation. And they can't choose wrong. And God says, I already have angels. I have something more interesting in mind. I would love a creation that's not intimidated by me and yet still chooses to serve me. What if I conceal my presence so that they wonder if I even exist and then they're calling the shots and let's see if they choose truth. This is what God has in mind for this week. Thanks for listening. We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.